Heaven, I thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here at the Brook, God. Lord, I thank you for the things you're doing in our lives. God, I thank you for the ways that uh, you're moving in this church, Father. Uh, we know the church is not a building, it's the people. And Father, I see what you're doing in the lives of people, and I'm so thankful, God. And Lord, it's not always easy to be refined by you, but it, the result is always worth it. And so, Father, I pray you continue that great work in our lives. Father, I pray for those who are new to our Brook family today or maybe uh, been new over a few weeks. God, I ask that they would uh, encounter you in a fresh way and see how awesome uh, you really are. God, I ask that you would move in our community and the churches in our neighborhood, that you would lead the other pastors and leaders, and that you would cause us to saturate this neighborhood with the good news of Jesus. Uh, we want to see you lifted high, O oh Lord, in Montclair, in Elmwood Park, in Portage Park, in Austin, in Belmont Cragen, in Dunning. God, do it for the glory of your name. Uh, so Lord, we love you. I pray your spirit would speak through me, God. Would you give me a clarity of thought? And Lord, for each of us, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your spirit wants to show us and tell us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, man. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, it is a joy to be back in this pulpit. It's been a minute for me before I, since I last preached. Um, but I'm excited to continue on in the book of Joshua where we've been talking uh, for about five or six weeks now. And in this book, we learn a lot about faith and courage, and we see how God works in the lives of people. And that's something that gets me pretty excited. Uh, this past week, I was at Starbucks, where I tend to study at least once a week, trying to connect with people, uh, see people that I, I've been able to meet in the community. And I, I saw this one guy that I've gotten to know over the last few years, and he's uh, a newly minted police officer uh, in, in Chicago. And so we were talking, I was asking him about his experience, and it was, it was cool hearing about the things he's learning. It's hard to hear about the things he's already experienced. And we know our police officers, our men and women in uniform, put their lives in danger every day, and we are very thankful for all of them. And he was sharing, yeah, we give it up for our, our police officers for sure. And as I was talking to him about it, he, he was also excited about, uh, about the paycheck. <laughs> and I can't blame him for that. He was excited to hear about the increase he's gotten from his previous jobs. But as we began to talk, I began to hear things about his value systems in life and what he perceived to be a successful life. And for him, it was the ceiling, the, the, the ways that he could increase in his pay to increase in his property and the things he owned and the possessions he had because for him, that's what it meant to succeed in life. And uh, I challenged them on some things, saying, hey, I, I, let me give you a different perspective. And I could tell it was, it was kind of mind-blowing for him. But what it came down to, I began to see that for him, he had some really pure desires, and he also had some selfish ones, frankly. And I think all of us have been in that boat, where we got some really legit desires, and we have some pretty, pretty selfish ones. And, and those selfish desires do exist in all of us. And what it comes from is, is a heart of, of covetousness, what the Bible calls covetousness. We don't, we don't speak of coveting too much in our day and age, I think because it's probably too convicting. Um, but the truth of the matter is a, a covetous heart is something that all of us battle with. It is a desire for selfish gain. It is it's a desire to possess something that we don't have, and it's, a, it's a, a strong and urgent desire for that very thing. And it's fascinating when we look at the Bible, when we look at the, the people of Scripture, 
Covetousness is actually at the root of the first sin recorded in the scripture. You might recall in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were there, and Eve was having a conversation with the serpent. And the serpent told her, you will not surely die if you eat of this fruit. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And it was that line that persuaded Eve to take the fruit and eat it. That she would be like God. She coveted God's knowledge of good and evil. This is why in the book of Exodus, God tells his people in the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or female servant, or his ox, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Because covetousness says, I want what they have, oftentimes for selfish gain, and then we have this urgent desire to take it. Covetousness is at the core of, of what we do. Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. He He talks about impurity of life as a form of covetousness because it takes from another person what you want for yourself to satisfy your longings at their expense. Paul goes on to say, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and he says that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So Paul takes it a step further and saying, covetous is not only taking from another person or taking something for selfish gain, but at the core it is idolatry, he says. Ultimately what it is saying is, I want something else to satisfy within me what only God was meant to satisfy. It's at the core of all of who we are, this heart and desire to be covetous, But know this for sure, that covetousness will always be followed by destruction. Like the person behind you in a conga line. It'll always be following you wherever you go. If you lead with a covetous heart, destruction is nearby. And that's what we see throughout the scriptures. Covetousness is followed by destructive consequences. And so what we want to do today, I want us to see the things in our heart that maybe we don't want to acknowledge are there. I want us to turn the eyes of our soul away from ourselves and the things that we want and put them toward Jesus and let him be what ultimately satisfies those longings. Because when we follow Jesus, there is joy, there is forgiveness, there is life eternal. And when we follow our passions apart from him, there is destruction. There are a few stories in the Bible that illustrate this very point better than the story of a man named Achan in the book of Joshua, chapter 7 and 8. And that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. We're going to see how his coveting heart led to destruction. And we're going to see through the eyes of the good news of Jesus what God has as an answer to that sin of our soul. So would you meet me in the book of Joshua, chapter 7? If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in a chair in front of you. There's a blue Bible there. We're on page 182 in that blue Bible. If you don't have a Bible in your possession, if you don't own one, if there's not one at home, please uh, take the one that's in front of you there. Take it home with you. You can keep it, um, and we'd love for you to read it, because through the Bible, God speaks. And we're going to see that even now as I open God's Word. 
Joshua chapter 7 and 8. Before we get into the chapter, I want to give us some context. Context is everything in every passage in Scripture, and especially this one. So let me backtrack. The, 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 the Bible begins with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and then promises God gives to Abraham to start a great people from him. And that would become the Jewish people, the same people that Moses would lead, lead out of slavery in Egypt. Moses was the great leader of Israel. And when the book of Joshua begins, Moses had just died and the baton had been passed to Joshua to lead God's people into the promised land. Joshua's very afraid got over a million people at his, you know, following him. He knows that they had a track record of turning away from their leaders. He knows his own frailty, and he knows that the promised land is filled with warriors that he's supposed to trust God to overcome. So the book of Joshua goes on, and he sends out spies into this land called Jericho to see if they can take the land, and he finds out right away that God had, had put fear into the people of Jericho. And then last week we saw in in Joshua chapter 6, God gives the people of Israel instructions on how to conquer this city of Jericho. He says, every day you are to walk around the city and blowing horns and and not talking at all. And on the seventh day, you're supposed to walk around the the city seven times. And at my cue, everyone shouts and I'm going to knock down the walls. Crazy battle plan. Joshua did not have a plan B. There was no backup plan. That's, he had all his eggs in the basket, and God came through. It's a beautiful story of God's promises and how God said, I'm going to provide for you what I promised. And so Joshua 6 ends on this exciting, uh, this, this thrilling moment. God says, everything in the city must be destroyed. Save the woman Rahab, who was who brought a welcome to the spies, and he says, and save all the treasures and put them into my house, my treasury. That was God's command for his people. And so the story of Jericho happens. It's an exciting time. And then we come to Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, and we see that dreaded word to start out the chapter. What's that word? But. It's a contrast. It's like when your boss says, hey, you've been doing really good, but... You're like, hold up, right? Or, or when the coach says, hey, you play really hard, but you're, like, you, you're waiting for something bad to be said. It, it, you, you prepare yourself. You're cringing. And here, God's people are about to cringe because we see this in chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, he took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. We see that the plan of Jericho looked good, but this man by the name of Achan took some of the things that were supposed to be devoted to the Lord and brought them into his own possession. What is that called? Covetousness. He coveted what belonged to God. And and God says here that they broke faith with God. They were unfaithful to God's covenant. But what I find so remarkable here is, who does it say is guilty? Who broke faith? It says Israel broke faith. Although one person committed the sin, all of them would feel its effects. 
Remarkable how the sin of one made the all guilty. Of course, we often see sin and we don't realize that the choices we make, whether it's covetousness, whatever kind of sin in our hearts, we often think that what is in our minds can be singular in focus. We don't realize it's corporate in scope. It really is something that affects not just us, but other people around us. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. And though we might want to think in our minds that our actions that rebel against God only affect us, the truth of the matter is it affects people around us. People of Israel are going to learn this in the worst of ways. The story goes on. They go to a city named Ai. And Joshua prepares for battle. We took Jericho, we're going to take Ai, we're going to take all the rest of the cities because this is the promised land. God was with us through Jericho. He's going to be with us as we continue on. And look at verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people, and then this is what happened. And they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people of Israel melted and became as water. This is not what Joshua expected. This is not what the people of Israel expected. The irony is that I, they call Bet Avin. And literally in Hebrew, that means the, the house of iniquity. In the grand scope of irony here, God's people are now going into war with an enemy they should have easily defeated, and they find themselves running away in defeat. We're told that 36 people died, and we might think, well, that's not that many if you're sending 3,000 into war and, you know, hand-to-hand combat. But, but how many people died in Jericho? It doesn't tell us. Maybe none. So not only did 36 people die, but then they ran away from the people of Ai. See, Achan's sin actually led to some, people, some people's death. There, there was a consequence to his sin. And what Joshua does immediately in verse 6, he tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. Joshua's like, this was not supposed to happen. What is going on? Everyone is guilty by this one man's sin. Everyone's affected by his sin. We see everyone suffers. Joshua does the only thing he could think to do is he goes before the ark of the Lord and he prays to God. You know, it's interesting that no mention of prayer was made before the battle. I don't know if that's just an omission or if that's something we're just, we're trying to hear. That that God wants to tell us, like, why didn't Joshua seek God? Perhaps God would have exposed this problem before they went into battle. What we do know is that Joshua is here. And in verse 7, he says, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of of the Amorites to destroy us. Joshua's like, God, why, why even send us across the Jordan River? Remember, you parted that river to bring us here, God. But if you're going to bring us here to die, why bring us here at all? Joshua sounds actually a lot like the people of Israel sounded in the wilderness. 
why did you send us out of Egypt? At least we had food while we were slaves. Here Joshua's falling into the same trap, the same despair. He says, would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, and here you hear his heart. What can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua here is panicking. God, they're going to hear about it. They're going to show up at our doorsteps in about three days probably with armies to take us out. And then he says, but what about even your great name? You see, Joshua understood something that all of us need to understand is that when we claim to be followers of Jesus, our actions and our lives say something about the God that we worship. And Joshua's like, they won't respect you, God, because your people ran away when you told us you'd give us the land. What about your great name? Joshua realizes they can't make God's name great. It already is. They just got to walk in God's great name. They got to point people to God's great name. And Joshua's like, we haven't done that. What's going on? You know, I I was thinking about this this past week. You guys have heard the news of Billy Graham's death. 99 and a half years old, a man who was an evangelist in our country for decades. I put this up on social media, but a fascinating fact is Billy Graham preached from this stage uh, in his younger years when he worked for Youth for Christ. Billy Graham had a a fascinating thing, a fascinating reputation. Because as he died, you notice, what did everybody talk about? What's one thing about Billy everyone talked about? How there was no scandal in his life. I want to live 99 years old and people to to be able to say that about me. See, for for Billy Graham, though, and I've heard him talk about this and write about this, he understood that his life was a reflection of the God that he served. He knew that his life would say something about God's great name. Billy Graham writes this about integrity. He says, integrity is the glue that holds our way of life together. What our young people want to see in their elders is integrity, honesty, truthfulness, and faith. What they hate most of all is hypocrisy and phoniness. Joshua's looking at the people and he's praying to God. He's saying, God, what are they going to say about you now? I don't know what happened here, but, but they're, the, the, the people are not going to respect your name. I read an article on NBCNews.com talking about Billy Graham's life. And the person wrote this about Billy Graham. He, he acknowledged the fact that in, in the 40s, 1940s, Billy Graham was not the only evangelist out there. And of course, the truth is the same in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But the man said there are many evangelists, though, who did like Billy Graham. However, their lives were ridden in scandal. They, they were out on, for selfish gain. They made a killing off of people through the good news of Jesus. They wrecked the name of God in our society. He says this, he says, ultimately the reckless behavior of the televangelists in the 1980s inflicted untold damage on their faith. Their refusal to be accountable led them into temptations that they could not resist. All of them, and by extension, evangelical Christianity itself, 
we're discredited. And while we cannot demonstrably connect recent slide in evangelicals to this legacy of scandal, such stories are not likely to attract new converts. What he's saying is people who named Jesus but lived a secret life brought scandal on the name, the great name of our God, and it affected the people around him. What I appreciated about Billy Graham was in 1948, he was in Modesto, California with four of his traveling companions, and these men made a covenant together there to do four things. To agree to take a set salary and never take a salary based on how many people gave. Secondly, they resolved to never criticize other Christians and leaders. Thirdly, they never provided estimates of their crowd sizes and let other people do that because they didn't want people to say they exaggerated their numbers. And then fourthly, they took every precaution to never give the appearance of sexual impropriety. Billy Graham said this, he says, we sought to avoid any situation that would have even the appearance of compromise or suspicion. And from that day on, I did not travel, meet, or eat alone with a woman other than my wife. The name of his God is great. And he wanted nothing to do with marring that great name. See, Joshua's concern here is the concern all of us need to have. And as I look at our nation and look at Christianity in our country, there are a number of things that grieve me that I see like, God, what's, what's happening to your name in our society when the church is so divided? There are so many racial and ethnic tensions in our country. And what bothers and angers me so much is when Christians contribute to the divisions rather than providing healing to those things. It grieves the heart of God when we use the language of us versus them, those people who live in those neighborhoods, who talk like that, who dress like that. that. That's not Jesus talking. And there are racial tensions in our nation. Yes, we are at a call to reveal these tensions. Yes, expose them, but also provide solutions. Let the gospel, the good news of Jesus, saturate our lips. I also see the political divides within the church. Family, I think this is going to mar the testimony of Christians in our nation. Too many believers are defending their political parties and their politicians when their politicians and parties are living in sin. Too many. I'm talking Democrats and Republicans. When our leaders are speaking in such ways that dishonor Jesus, and yet because we align politically, we defend them? That's not what Jesus would do. He exposed that kind of stuff. Yeah, we got convictions. Yeah, we have desires, and that's good, and let's, let's make a difference, but don't defend sin. Church is doing it all over Facebook, all over the Internet. What about God's great name? What about God's great name? Don't defend politicians who don't defend the unborn. Don't defend politicians who produce racism, who don't care about people, about themselves. And family, I I know that we, we we can't stand in judgment. We know we are not perfect. But family, let's stay united by the gospel of Jesus. And yeah, let's, let's enter into our world. Let's enter into our politics. Let's, let's speak prophetically into those things, but let's not be found defending sin. 
We can be people who have political differences and be united under Jesus. We can do that, and we must do that. What about our God's great name? What about our God's great name? And here Joshua is there, standing in the ruins, bearing 36 people, grieving with their families, saying, God, what happened? What happened here? Well, God's response is what matters here. Look in verse 10. The Lord, said to Josh, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? I hear a rebuke there. Look at verse 13. What does God tell him again? Get up. I think what God is saying, Joshua, I, I told you to be strong and courageous in chapter 1, and I told you I would be with you wherever you go. Clearly, I was not with you, so get up and find out what happened. Verse 11, God says, Israel has sinned. Notice the corporate nature of sin of one man. One man's guilt, one man's uh, uh, covetousness affected everybody. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand for their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Here, here Joshua here. When he got the call to take over leading the people of Israel, one of the greatest comforts was when God says, Joshua, I will be with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. And what does God tell him here? Joshua, I'm no longer going to be with you unless you deal with the sin. Unless you deal with the sin. God goes on to say, you've got to destroy it. He tells him there in verse 15, to destroy it and to burn it with fire and to put to death those who are guilty. We see a just God here who doesn't play with sin. We see a just God here who reminds us what, what, what uh, Romans 6.23 says, that the wages of sin is death. Death is the result. Death is the consequence of our rebellious hearts of breaking faith with God. And God's saying, Joshua, you've got to do something about this. And you get a sense of how badly Joshua cared about God's presence by what we see in verse 16. So Joshua rolls up early the next morning. He's like, I, I'm, not, I'm not waiting on this. I'm getting up first thing in the morning, and we're going to deal with this. Joshua casts lots to find out who the guilty person is. And family by family, he, he learns to find out. It is a man by the name of Achan. In verse 19, Joshua says to him, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done and do not hide it from me. He'll be giving God glory because God is saying this happened. And if, jo and if Achan confesses to it, it's validating God's claim. So this is what Achan says. Verse 20. Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. I want you to hear the anatomy of sin as Achan shares it with us. He says, when I saw, can you say saw? When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 
50 shekels. Then I coveted, say coveted. I coveted them and took, say took, and took them. And see, they are hidden, say hidden. They are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. I saw it, I coveted it, I took, and I hid. Achan confesses. As I sat in this text this week, I realized that this really is the pattern of sin. When Eve was in the Garden of Eden, what does it tell us? Genesis 3, 6, 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for the fruit, and that it was a delight coveted in the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And then, and then it says, and they sowed fig leaves to hide, right, together. Consider King David as he sat on a rooftop when he should have been at war, and he sees a woman bathing, and he lusts after her. What does it say? It happened one, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired, he coveted, he inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. And we know the rest of the chapter, David hides his sin by bringing Uriah home and ultimately executing him. When we think of James chapter 1, when James tells us each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. See, this is the heart of a covetousness. We see something, and that's where the temptation happens. And all of us have a choice in that moment. What we will do, how we will respond to the greed of our heart, the idolatry of our heart, the desire of our heart that is not in alignment with God. We see it, what do we do? Eve desired the knowledge of God. Achan desired riches. David desired sex. What is it that we desire and how is it tempting us? And sin happens when we take. We let our eyes, what we saw, lead us to coveting. That's the sin of the heart, which leads to the sin of action, which is taking. But sin of action always precedes, is preceded by sin of the heart. And so we've got to look in our hearts and say, God, what are you doing? Even now, God, what do you want to expose in my heart? How am I being covetous in my heart? How is this desire seeking to take reign over my soul, God? Am I taking it? And the way sin works is we rebel against God and we see, we covet, we take. Our natural impulse is then to hide it and to let it be hidden. I wonder what Achan was thinking. I bet you he, think he, he thought he got away with it. He brought it into his tent. He dug a hole in the ground. He buried it, put a blanket over it. Not one person knew about it but God. See, this is the anatomy of sin. Is that a lot of times 
we're, we're drawn away by our own lusts, our own passions. As James says, we're, we're lured. It's like a fish. We, we saw the shiny hook. We, we saw it. And you know, every fish that coveted that worm took a bite. And it is yanked, brought in, and it will lead to that fish's death. And that's how we respond when we respond in sin to the things that we see in our eyes. What is it that God wants to show in your heart today? What are the things that you are constantly looking at, whether with your literal eyes or the eyes of your heart, that God wants to expose? Have you taken? Maybe you've been hiding it. Maybe it's buried deep within your soul and nobody knows about it but you and God. We see from Achan here is that God is fearless and passionate about exposing the sin of our heart. Because we learn from Achan's life is that his sin affects the community. It's no different here in the local church and the family of God in our country. When we walk in rebellion to God and we try to keep a secret of our sinful lives, it's going to affect you. It's going to affect your, your immediate circle and even broaden out. It's a ring that keeps growing. Achan's whole entire household was exposed. You see, a sin leads to death, and this is what happens to Achan in verse 25. And Joshua said to Achan, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord bring trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. It might sound harsh in our ears, but it gives us a taste of God's justice for the wages of all sin. All sin, all sin is death. What happened to Eve when she sinned? Sin and death entered the world. What happened to King David when he sinned? That child died. What happens to Achan? He dies and his family dies as well. This is, this is weighty stuff here because we realize that our decisions affect people. I'm going to provide for us, show us God's provision, better yet, for this. But before we get to that, I want us to understand the cure for covetousness. What's God's cure for that thing in your heart that wants what does not belong to you? Well, the first thing is repentance. That's the word that the Bible uses, which means to turn away from and turn toward God. So if you're coveting that thing, you turn away from it and say, God, I, I desire you to satisfy my longing more than that thing because, God, I know you can do it and that thing you won't. Repentance says, God, I'm sorry. That thing is an idol. It has drawn me away from you. It has poisoned my soul. It is killing me. Repentance says, God, I don't want that. I want you. Would you forgive me? And it is to walk then in the direction of obedience to God. Repentance is a change of mind and a turning from. I love how Romans 8 says this. It says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And see, what the Bible is telling us is that there is nothing you are lacking that God has not already provided for you. 
So whatever we desire outside it from God, it's saying that God, what you've given isn't enough. Consider Eve. God says you can eat of any tree in the garden except for that one. And which one does she want? The one she couldn't eat from. God tells David after he's confronted, David, I would have given you anything you wanted in the kingdom. Why did you steal that man's wife? The crazy thing is with Achan, later on in chapter 8, they will defeat Ai now that, it's, now that they've been purged before God. And God tells them, you can have all the spoil. Jericho was supposed to be the first fruits to God, though. See, covetousness says, God, what you have offered is not enough. But repentance turns our eyes from self and puts our eyes on Jesus who satisfies our longings. For the wages of sin is death is Romans 6.23a. Romans 6.23b says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What was the word that this chapter opened up with? But. But the people of Israel broke faith concerning the devoted things. But the people sinned. But sin brought a contrast. And it's but sin that has caused a separation between us and God. But sin has brought about death, despair, and destruction for each of us. But sin has broken relationships and caused racism in our country. But sin is what seizes hope and clouds our judgment. But sin is what causes good, evil, and evil good in our hearts. But sin is what appears to have won. But when we fast forward into the New Testament scriptures, Ephesians 2, 4 says, but God. But God, God may be exposing sin in your heart today, covetousness, all kinds of ugliness in your heart. And you must understand, yes, the penalty for sin is death, but God has taken the death that you deserved. Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And guess what? God has come down to this earth and shed his blood so you can have forgiveness, but God has forgiven what you couldn't make right. But God has restored what was fractured. But God has taken our sin and taken death by the throat. But God has done that. Am I by myself here, family? Come on. See, our God has taken sin and death and defeated it. But God has taken your sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west, the psalmist tells us. See, in Achan's story, we're told that everyone was guilty by one man's sin. Everyone is affected by one man's sin. Everyone suffered by this one man's sin. And just as the sin of one caused the many to suffer, so also the suffering of the one causes sin for the many to be destroyed. This is what Jesus has done. And so what we perceive to be a harsh consequence to Achan, let us not realize this very fact that that's our penalty as well. Achan's family suffered. But you know what God does? Is he restores stories. And though you might be feeling that you're living out the consequences of your sin, you let the but sin of your life be conquered by the but God of your life. 
You set your eyes of faith away from coveting, away from sin, away from its effects, and put it on God and say, God, I'm trusting you for a new story. I'm trusting you to break generational sin. I'm trusting you to restore what is broken. See, Achan's sin caused a detour in God's plans, but they ultimately arrive in the right destination. Chapter 8 tells us that Israel goes and takes I for the glory of God and the restoration of his great name among the nations. This is the good news, family. That's why Jesus can say these words. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If you put your faith in Jesus today, if you repent from the sin that God's exposing your heart, you're not a slave to sin you are a child of God. And as a child of God, you are a recipient of all his blessings, all things that Paul told us. For that reason, he could say, what can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Death? What's the answer? Sin? Demons? Your own flesh? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Christ Jesus. Anyone the Son sets free is free indeed. So let's hold fast to that. Let's pray, family. Father in heaven, we have seen in your word, God, the anatomy of sin. And God, I know all of us, God, are are confronted, God, by, by the ways we let what we see cause our hearts to covet and our actions to take and in our panic to hide. But thank you, Lord, for the but God moments of Scripture where Jesus on that cross died the death that we deserved to give eternal life. God, I pray, Father, that today you would bring a renewed gospel hope in the lives of men and women for everyone here who is a child of God and they feel like their sin ever hangs over them like a light fixture, God, I pray you would tear down that lie and let them remember and remind them, God, that there is no condemnation toward them. For the brother and sister today, Lord, who has been hiding deep within their soul the sins of their past, the sins of their present and it has begun to poison them, God, and they, they feel like a slave and they need deliverance. God, I pray that today will be the day that they confess their sin and receive your forgiveness. That they would confess it to you, God, first and foremost. They might confess it for men to confess to a brother and ladies to a sister and say, I want this out and I want God's healing. Would you do that, Lord? And in all this, God, we have one goal, and it's that your great name would be honored and feared in this church, in our community, and throughout our country. We worship and adore you, and thank you, Lord. 
We commit all this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand up, church. We have a prayer team who's available to pray with you. I know God, God pulls up some things in our hearts, and that's not comfortable. I know that. But that's why our prayer counselors are available. Would you, prayer team, would you come up? Go to the back as well, front of the sanctuary. And God's putting some things in your heart. He's saying, I, I, just, I just can't carry this on my own. Would you, would you come to one of our prayer counselors? Man, they are so eager and hungry to pray with you. Man, maybe you just say, I want God's name to be exalted in my life, and I just, I just want a fresh start. Let them pray with you. And maybe you just want to do business with God on your own, and you want to come here to the altar as a step forward of, of just saying, God, I, I want to t- take a step forward. I, I want to acknowledge what you're doing in my heart is real. We invite you to do that. Just come here, here kneel. Let's pray out to God as a, as a response. Whatever it is, let, let's not let his words grow dull on our ears and not penetrate to our hearts.